Hello and welcome to Transition Tea, the podcast dedicated to demystifying the world of healthcare transition and activation planning. I'm your host, Christina Olavidia, the Director of Business Development and Communications at Yellow Brick Consulting. Today, I am so excited to have Lori Scott, the AVP of Respiratory Care for La Melinda University Health, joining us. Lori, welcome to the podcast. We got an opportunity to chat right before, but for our listeners who are unfamiliar with you and La Melinda, can you provide our listeners an introduction? Absolutely. And thank you, Christina, for the invitation. Um, I, like I mentioned, I said, this is my first ever podcast. So I'm super excited to have the opportunity to chat a little. Um, As Christina mentioned, my name is Lori Scott, and I'm the Assistant Vice President for Respiratory Care Services across the system at Loma Linda. Now, Loma Linda is a very big organization, kind of plopped right down in the middle of the Inland Empire in Southern California. And uh, I was born and raised, I'm a native Californian who has spent nearly all of her adult life in Southern California, Um, grew up in the Coachella Valley, and uh, had a interesting experience in my new job, my first very first job, and um, it sent me running to Loma Linda, and it's been my forever home, and I absolutely love it, and uh, it's a great place to work, uh, it's a tertiary uh, trauma center, and we see a lot of very interesting cases um, from all walks of life, so that's uh, that's kind of our story, and um, you can't really miss Loma Linda. You can see it coming into the Inland Empire as you're on approach to Ontario Airport, or you can see it from the freeway now because of our big, beautiful new uh, building that uh, Yellow Brick helped us move into. Well, Loma Linda certainly is a special organization filled with special people. Um, certainly a mega project, and we're really excited to dive into that conversation. Um, today, Lori, we are drinking Queen of Tarts tea. Um, I did mine iced. Um, I am also a native Southern Californian. (laughs) And for those unfamiliar with our seasons or lack thereof, it is a hundred degrees here in California today. Um, so cheers, Lori. (laughs) Cheers, Christina. I did mine hot only because it's the end of my very busy day and the tea soothes me. So Um, I'm happy that uh, we have a chance to sip tea together. (laughs) What do you think of the tea? I like it a lot. It's very tasty. I used just a little bit in the bag so that I could save the rest in the little top so I can uh, enjoy it. And I I love tea and uh, I'll certainly look for this again. (laughs) Oh, well, listeners, pull up a cup and let's talk transition. So Lori, um, your first job in healthcare, you said sent you running to Loma Linda. Can you share what that experience was and um, how did you like it? So it was a a kind of a funny story. I was working a young kid, uh, literally in high school still. I was working at a local uh, Palm Springs newspaper and I always wanted, I always kind of dreamed of working in healthcare. And there was a little small hospital, you know, the Palm Springs Coachella Valley was pretty much dedicated to the rich and famous and the snowbirds. You know, there was a small little bit of uh, family living in different areas of the valley, but mostly Palm Springs was um, was the rich and famous. Um, so I had an opportunity to interview at uh, Desert Hospital. And the funny story is I literally begged my first job. 
I told the recruiter I would do anything. And they told me, well, they really didn't have anything because, you know, I had no experience. And I said, I'll do anything. I'll do anything. So the very next day, she said she would call me if there was anything she felt I could do. So the next day I got a phone call from her. She told me, she goes, you know, Lori, you were so convincing and you just won my heart. So the job they gave me was in a small closet. Literally, it was a closet. And for those on the the call who may um, be an old timer like me, I did the first ever batching of Modelco cards. And Modelco cards are the first ever computerized cards that they would bill central supplies and other items for patients. So we would do, it was like this big giant typewriter and you could not even imagine how proud I was to sit in that little closet and pound away making packets of Modelco cards for the registration team. So I, my very first, my very actual first healthcare job was at uh, Desert Hospital in the registration. I finally graduated out of the, um, the closet, if you will, and I was able to admit the maternity moms. So I got to do all of the pre-admission for the, the maternity moms. So it was then I kind of overheard in the hospital, the code blue calls. So that kind of piqued my interest. So one day I happened to be out on my rounds, dropping off my Mentelco cards. And um, I heard code blue and I walked by and I, it, I, it was like love at first sight. And although it was, you know, total pandemonium in there, the reality was it intrigued me so much that I made the decision to look at either nursing or respiratory and ultimately landed in the respiratory care uh, world. So Loma Linda, when I graduated, I had my first ever uh, difficult infant delivery. And for a kid that was barely 21 and really sheltered in life, I had a wonderful life, mother, father, dog, two brothers, picket fence, the whole nine yards. And um, here I am in the middle of this, this baby delivery. The mother walked in, no prenatal care, in a lot of distress, and the baby was born. And to say the least, I was absolutely scared out of my skin. <laughs> I went all the way home crying that night. I was on the night shift, and we only had two RTs on that shift. And I went and told my parents, I said, oh my goodness, what did I sign up for? And it literally, it scared me. And the only thing that I remember besides being scared to death was the doctor yelling to the uh, nursing staff to call Loma Linda. They need to come and get this kid right away because um, it had literally APGARs of zero and one. And for those on the call that, that understand APGAR scores, that's a predictor of you know survivability in many cases. But um, sure enough, the, the Loma Linda team came down, picked up the kid, and, um, and that was, that's what prompted me to ring up Loma Linda and find out what opportunities for extended education and, and additional learning opportunities. And um, I started there in 1981. And I just celebrated my 40th year with them. So suffice to say, I love the place. I never expected to stay there my entire career, but they just kept offering me education, opportunities. I worked 10 years in the neonatal intensive care unit, 20 years in the operating room. I was uh, privileged to work with Dr. Len Bailey and the, the heart transplant team. Um, just an amazing run of different specialties, HBO, bronchoscopy, blood gas services, the list goes on and it ultimately landed me in my leadership role today. So um, 
I just love Loma Linda and all of the opportunities that I've had to grow with them and obviously planning to retire with them. <laughs> so oh, what a what a special story, Lori. Um, thank you for sharing that. I mean, absolutely you started so young and um, you know, making that jump into respiratory care at the time, I think, I mean, it had to have been a difficult one. And you know, all these years later, you really are an expert in the field. Um, and I, I just think it's amazing, you know, how serendipity and all of those things work. It's meant to be correct. Um, and, Absolutely. Uh, looking at your role as a respiratory therapist then, and now your role as a leader today um, in respiratory therapy, what are some essential skills that, you know, somebody in your role needs to have to care for patients? So I think as a leader, as a staff, uh, bedside, frontline staff, I would say you just have to have that compassion, that teamwork, um, dedication to seeing the patient through to discharge. But as a leader, I think there's two key things that I have found have been most beneficial for me and, and something that I can, it's tangible, I can hang on to it, and that's accountability and adaptability. So accountability, everything that I do, I have to be accountable for because if somebody is, is my receiving end, you know, somebody is, is waiting for me to do X or Y, or somebody is, you know, relying on me to investigate something so that they can close something, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's just a constant um, reminder that I have responsibilities and I'm accountable to somebody. The adaptability is that not everything is um, perfectly wrapped in a little bow or as perfect as this transition tea. It's not always like that. Sometimes it's a hot mess and you have to figure out, let's see. Okay, so I looked into this and I was accountable to that, but now I have to adapt to like, uh-oh, what did I find out in my journey of accountability? And how do I now adapt to something that needs to be improved or maybe needs to be celebrated? or shared as best practice. I mean, there's a lot of things that you have to adapt to when you discover. So, you know, and that to be real honest, as we go down through some of your, your questions, I'm sure it'll come up that that's probably what helped lead such a, such a success, successful transition into our new building. But on top of all of that, in order for me to be successful, I have to have a team of senior leaders who see that in me and give me that offer opportunity to really um, show what talents I have or don't have. <laughs> but um, truly it, it helps to demonstrate the, um, the degree of ability that you have when your senior leaders task you with things and they trust you to be accountable and adaptable to whatever you discover. So those are my two go-tos. And um, I feel like it's a reminder, don't, don't, you know, go, go big or go home, you know, you better just do it right, go big or go home so that you can, you know, really get the job done as it should be. And healthcare doesn't give you a lot of opportunities to, uh, to have a second chance or, you know, sometimes when things happen, um, if they don't have a good outcome, you don't get a second chance. So you have to be really aware and accountable and, and adaptable to what is was needed to get the job done. I'm gonna um, 
touch on a couple of things you said. So accountable and adaptable, I think, you know, as a clinician, 100%, you're accountable to the patient, you're accountable to that family, and you're accountable to your team. And um, you certainly demonstrated that through our patient move process, et cetera, um, even through the task list, just getting people to report out, et cetera. Um, it seems that you're a natural project manager, although you're not a project manager, <laughs> you're managing these projects and these people on a daily basis. So um, that was, to me, something that stood out to in something you just said. And then additionally, um, you touched on your project, and we're going to jump into it right now, um, but adaptable. I mean, in healthcare, in the world, things are constantly evolving, changing. We, as project managers at Yellowbrick, constantly write these plans, right? We hope it goes to plan, but you always have to be flexible in the fact that things are going to change, mm-hmm. and you can't just, you know, put your feet in the sand and say, you know what? Nope, I'm not moving. This was my plan. You kind of have to adapt and say, you know, well, didn't go that way. And we got to shift, right? Because it's going to leave us behind. Um, So for those unfamiliar, um, Loma Linda opened up the Dennis and Carol Trosh Medical Campus in August of 2021. Um, If you think about the timing, we're in the middle of COVID. Um, It was a mega project consisting of two separately licensed facilities. I I have to say that was a first for us because essentially you're all in the same building, but it's two two hospitals, essentially. A 320-bed adult hospital and then 128 pediatric beds. So big projects on their own, huge together. Um, Can you share your role on that project and maybe your favorite part of everything? So yeah, when you remind me of how... uh... It really daunting it was. And I remember thinking, as we watched the building go up, I thought, oh my gosh, this is really happening and, and it's really big. So when we first, you know, you kind of think of, oh, it's going to be a long time. I don't have to think too much about it. But amazingly enough, the project went very well. Um, there was many blessings, good weather. There was only a couple delays. We had some you know, uh, steel issues initially, but after we got started, it just seemed to unfold, you know, beautifully and things really were uh, coming along. So my my primary role was assigned to me um, as one of the ancillary leaders. I was partnered with a couple other very, very uh, close allies in, in the healthcare battle, um, one from pharmacy and one from uh, Imaging and the Cancer Institute. And we had a great relationship, all longtime Loma Linda employees and, and very trusted colleagues in my world. Glad to call them friends as well as colleagues. But um, we basically had the task of looking after all of the ancillary roles and different um, individuals that would need to be accounted for on day of move. Uh, physical therapies and some of the um, dietary groups. And we just kind of got them all together and kept them all together. Uh, At times it was like herding cats, but uh, we managed to get around that by uh, just taking turns, engaging with them, reminding them in professional and courteous ways. And um, it was in the beginning, I really started to feel the sweat a little bit because the list were big um, and the task lists were big. I got my binder and I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, this thing's huge, worse than school. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, we all partnered and all of the leadership team uh, in the Loma Linda family, they were as excited as anybody else. So, you know, we felt like this was our opportunity 
to demonstrate that we're all in and we were all committed and we wanted this as bad as yellow brick did or or carry our ceo at the time you know they all wanted this to be a successful run and we we wanted it too so it made it easy for us to uh, nag people for the lack of a better word, but we did it. And then the most exciting part for me, or the, the best part for me is was to just be the cheerleader for the group and garnishing that excitement for the project. And people in the beginning when it was just a big hole of dirt, you know, and there was like hardly anything. And then we had a really good rainstorm, which is so unusual for California. We never get rain, but um, especially Southern. But uh, one day we looked out and it's like, oh, it's a swimming pool. <laughs> it was just had this big puddle of, of water that had come, you know, basically at the, at the foundation of the uh, building. But as we started to see it, we could be found frequently looking out our windows facing east and watching the progress and getting really excited. And one funny thing is my managers, literally, they got a set of binoculars and set it in the window seal so people could come and peer through the window because we have east facing windows in our department and we could easily see the progress that the building was making. So before we were allowed to really go on site because it was a hard hat and highly restricted area, um, we got binoculars and let everybody come in and we welcomed them. We said, hey, let's get let's get energized about this project. Take a peek at where we're at. And they were like, wow, this thing is huge. And I think I think it's just getting people jazzed up about the whole move and not looking at it like, oh, there's so much work because it is a lot of work. It's a ton of work, but you need to have a lot of fun with it at the same time. And of course, having the Yellow Brick team with us, um, they guaranteed a lot of inspiration and motivation and, and stories of success and don't worry, this is going to work out. So that was also a real blessing to have you guys all on the site when we, when we got together and we held meetings and stuff like that. So um, yeah, I loved getting people excited because I am by nature cup uh, half full. I'm never a cup half empty. <laughs> Me too, Lori. I uh, 100% agree. There's always a silver lining somewhere. You just gotta sometimes look really hard for it. So yes. Um, and speaking of the rainstorm, I remember when the moat was around. Um, I was joking with Allison that you needed to throw little um, inflatable alligators <laughs> in there because it would have been so adorable. You would have had like little, um, you know, alligators in your moat. So I love that. I love yeah. that. And I, I was like. When I first went down to the moat on our tour, I remember thinking, this is kind of creepy down here, <laughs> but uh, it's it's absolutely fascinating the way the building was put together and how it will respond to a seismic event should we ever, hopefully never have anything. Um, we know it's coming, but you know we just don't know when, but we are really well prepared and the building is structured so it can withhold um, or stand up to a very big seismic event. So, um, but that was fascinating down there. And I just couldn't believe it that, you know, we were on a, one of the most sophisticated buildings in the entire Inland Empire. So that's pretty impressive. I think for your seismic grading, I think it's like, a, I think second in the world from our fun facts, I remember. So I remember uh, that too. Certainly um, a beautiful project and a, a great team. Um, before that project, you touched on maybe one of your first projects was um, that computer, but had you had any other experience working on a project 
managing people, you know, towards mm-hmm. a, you know, that common goal? So we did, you know, back when in my neonatal days, when I first uh, came to Loma Linda, you know, we had a very small NICU and, and, um, it was still a regional center. It it uh, transported in from as far away as Barstow, as far away as Blythe. Um, we would touch on the LA. Sometimes if we had the specialist with surgery or something, patients would come in. So, you know, we, we soon in my years there were really um, back-to-back isolates. I mean, there were times when... Uh, we really had to shimmy to get in between the isolates. So they built the children's hospital. I don't remember what year that was in, but I know it had to have been somewhere in the early 1990s because I left NICU in 96. So um, we built that children's hospital, which is the seven and 800 towers. It is on the west end of the Loma Linda building, the original structure of the Cloverleaf. Um, And we tackled that project as a team. We did not have consultants at the time. We did not have the, um, I don't want to say bandwidth to bring them on board, but I think the project was small enough that we could manage with just our internal leadership team. But that was a lot of fun. And it was certainly um, one that we had to do just the same thing that we did on on a much smaller scale, but it was still moving um, a significant number of infants off of the original, um, what we called the 3300 um, infant neonatal unit. And then we took patients off of the fifth floor of the, uh, the Cloverleaf Towers, which was the pediatrics and all of the uh, acute care pediatrics. So that took very similar coordination. I remember we went room to room, we assigned babies, we did the same thing. We had one person guiding the, the move exit, the baby wasn't stable, we would stop and you know we would go to the next baby. And I just remember walking on to the, the new NICU when I first walked on and the rooms and the windows, we had no windows in our, our old building where we were located, but we had beautiful windows facing um, south, uh, west, and some on the north side. And it was just gorgeous because, you know, in NICU, they kind of encourage that natural light. So um, that was one of the first and early projects that we had that I had participated in and um, had a ton of fun. Never what I would have imagined we were moving in, uh, you know, in a, a whole nother time in 2021 to a, a building as big as the uh, Troche Medical Campus. But yeah, I guess it was uh, in the cards for us to do it big this time. <laughs> there was a reason you were so good at patient move. I knew it, you already <laughs> moved them. Um, I, I loved how you touched on the fact that it was similar, it's just sized down. So no matter what, even if you have a, a one department you know, facility that you're working on, you still need all of those components. You need to plan just the same. You just scale it down. So I appreciate you saying that because we a hundred percent agree, obviously. Um, But it's important that other clinicians agree to that because it just provides, you know, rhyme to the reason and keeps everything in order. Um, So we're going to talk about your patient move. Um, Lori, you were so instrumental and you know, ensuring that we had a sequence that was methodical, that was thoughtful of all those patient requirements, because we we moved a significant amount of patients yes. all at once, um, on the same day, um, and 
we want to share a little bit more about what made you successful, because usually that's what everyone wants to talk about. Like we open the doors, we come in first day and people are like, how are we going to move all our patients? So, um, moving 311 patients. And that's how that still holds the record for yellow brick. You still hold it for number <laughs> of patients moved in a single day. Um, how do you approach planning, um, thinking about staffing, um, and on top of it, you did it during COVID. Um, can you just share that experience with us? Yeah, that's kind of one of those nightmares that you just uh, don't want to relive, but I'm happy to share and hope that moving forward, we don't, that future uh, transition planning does not include a worldwide pandemic. But I will tell you that um, it really does take a village. And uh, what is the Beatles song? Just uh, try to find a little friend, or you have to have a little bit of friends or whatever. And I was, I was in charge of all the respiratory move, but what I did was looked at where was the most critical need for me to be present and front and center so that I could be sure that it's done right and done, you know, per the, the, the basic recommendation of the administration and the yellow brick consultants that we had on site, which included you. So my thing was that I assigned a good, strong manager to oversee the acute care because most of acute care is nasal cannula, maybe some high flow, um, maybe some patients that have tracheostomies. And we want to make sure we don't want to dislodge anything or cause a desaturation because interestingly enough, that the hike was quite a distance. I don't remember if you were part of the practice team. I think you were. Yep. And we had Allison in a crib and other people in a bed. And we had all kinds of people that were basically timing every step and looking at what could be a potential challenge as we moved all these patients. So I assigned one of my strong leaders to the acute care. And they managed to get all of those patients with a whole set of RTs and nurses and PCAs and, and dispatch folks. So that was one thing so that I could turn around and focus my attentions on ICU. And I cannot tell you how important it is to have people like your, your bestie nurse, uh, your critical care nursing partner, Susan, who I spent a lot of time meeting with before actual move day so that we could talk through the things that nurses and RTs have, I mean, remember that nursing and respiratory therapists are really the primary owners of the 24-7 model. We're here with the nurses all day long, and they're with us, and all night long, and all holidays, and weekends, and every other day of the week. Um, so I felt it important for us, for Susan and I, to really dig deep into what do you think are going to be some of the issues that nurses might have, and what do you think the RTs might have? How can we prevent that? Are there anything is there anything special that we need to do for any type of certain patients that, you know, might be at high risk? So we talked through all of that. And then from the respiratory side, the COVID for me was the most challenging because those patients were so fragile. So our typical vented patient can be transported with what we call an LTV ventilator. It's, it's a very mobile little device that allows us to move a patient. Let's say they need to go down for a CT or they need to go to a procedure, the OR or something. It's very easy to take them off their primary vent and move them on this little portable vent. But with COVID patients, you couldn't do that. They're so unstable. 
So therefore I had to get a whole nother team of RTs. We tested every ventilator for battery life. Who would have thought batteries? So typically the battery is, is short term. It's designed just to back you up should you lose power or for some reason something happens and you have to remove it from its electrical source. So you have a few minutes to kind of spare. So we tested every ventilator we found the most powerful vent. We tested the battery life. We ran it, ran it, ran it to see that it at least would give us one hour. We also decided, let's just say hypothetically, something happened to that battery. So you have to go deep. It's like peeling an onion. You know, you got to keep peeling the what ifs. And I, I'm not a what if kind of person, but when you're talking about moving COVID positive patients, you got to have that what if bone. So I said, well, what if something happened to the, the battery mid walk? And what are you gonna do? You got this ventilator now that dies, you can't use it. So we decided to go ahead and, and purchase a mobile battery that would give us enough juice to get to the next best spot. Even if it was a hookup in the hallway, we didn't care. We just wanted to be sure that we always had a spare battery. So then we talked about the INO that is typically, that's inhaled nitric oxide. It's almost always part of the COVID uh, manuscript, if you will, and we had to have that. So we walked through the multiple IVs, the INO, the ventilator, the extra hand, and then we started counting how many people do we need. So we went from, we kind of logically walked through the equipment that was needed, the consequences, if any of it failed, then we went to the labor, and do we want an air and a spare? And how do we want to take these patients and in what order? Do we want to get them off the unit first or do we want to wait and do it last? No, we decided we want to get them off the unit first. Let them get to the new location and get stable. And even in one case, there was a couple of the COVIDs that were not stable enough to even move when they were on their the list of um, scripted people for move. So, you know, it was it was one of those things that we had so much in skin in the game with this that we wouldn't typically have had if we just had your standard ICU patients, you know? And sometimes ICU patients are very, very sick, but I've never seen anything in my 40 year career that was as sick as a COVID positive patient. So when they made it to the ICU level, it was just, um, we had to go the extra mile and it meant having amazing, team people that were comfortable on the team that didn't have any fears. Uh, you wouldn't want a brand new graduate nurse or a brand new graduate RT doing this. You wanted somebody, your lead people, your managers, your anybody who was comfortable with the, um, the difficult challenge of moving somebody for 11, 12. And, and that was the other thing with COVID, you couldn't move too fast because you had about 50 wheels of things that, that had to be moved and you had to kind of really go slow. Um, and that was, the, that was the biggest challenge of all of it was just getting those patients out. And Susan and I, I cannot believe, we partnered so well, we checklist everybody, we communicated really well. We had backup people ready to go. So if anybody tripped or, or, you know, suddenly got sick or decided they just couldn't do it, we always had a, a, a somebody in the, in the, you know, runway ready to go with the team if they needed that. So, you know, it's, I think that Susan and I grew up together on 8100, which was our surgical ICU. And um, we knew each other well, we trusted each other and we trusted each other's 
um, feelings about certain things. And, and we knew that if we listened to each other, we would get this done right. And even as we were up on, I can't remember what other ICU, I want to say it was on 71. The command center actually called us and said, slow down, you guys are going too fast. <laughs> You're too successful. <laughs> so I was like, can you believe that? They really want us to slow down? And she goes, yeah, because we're so good. <laughs> so, you know, it's just, we have fun. We try to remind each other, listen, we have each other. We have the yellow brick team here who was, you know, obviously the experts at doing this thing. They do it all of their, you know, every day of the year, they're, they're transitioning hospitals. So we just decided the only people we really had to build as it related to um, the challenges we were faced with are the team members that we know very, very well, the RTs and the nurses that, you know, we trust with our patients every day. So, you know, it felt, um, it felt super comforting to us that we knew the CCST, Sarah Capella's team that were transporters and high acuity nurses that were very, very comfortable. Then we partnered them with the RTs who worked with the CCST nurses who all came from the ICUs. So you could see it was a family affair. It was like a giant get together of people who had worked together for many years and they were the glue to those that maybe were newer to the Loma Linda family and thought, what the heck am I doing out here? <laughs> Sitting here in the middle of this giant move in the middle of a pandemic and they want me to do what? <laughs> so yeah, so it really was just a lot of deep soul searching and discussion, lots of conversation, lots of communication. You absolutely have to be able to talk to one another and you can't wait and hold it up till like, you know, the bewitching hour. It's like, oh, whoop, we got one hour here. We got to talk about it. No, it took months and weeks and an even more escalated conversation as we got closer to the actual move dates. So Absolutely. And I think you hit on contingency planning, um, you know, peeling back that onion. Okay. I have my initial plan. And what if this, it's like a decision tree, right? Oh, you yeah. end up just trying to figure out and problem solve before it even happens so that that day runs as smooth as possible. I think we started planning, I think a year before the move. And that was when the original move was, you know, planning before, you know, COVID really ramped up, et cetera. So I, I, think it's so important, couldn't stress it enough. Um, always, you know, think about the what ifs of move because um, if they don't happen, that's great. And it goes smoother and we're able to send um, patients, you know, as quick as possible. But if it does, you're, you're ready for it. And people already know there's a plan in place and it reduces that overall anxiety because it's, it is a very high stress day, um, exciting day, but a you know, very stressful day to move on. It is. Time. Yeah. And honestly, most of the RCPs and the nurses, the good news is a lot of them had always worked together. So even in our worst times and COVID being that worst time, they'd already felt like this is like a new beginning almost, you know, they felt like, wow, we're going to be moving into our new house here. And you know, we've got these COVID patients, but we made it and we're now we're going to the next thing that we had postponed, like you mentioned, from the original date in May to August, just because of COVID and being so far behind um, because of COVID, not because we hadn't been, we've been doing both things. We've been continuing transition planning 
But, you know, COVID just took a lot of resources and a lot of energy from the team. But this was kind of almost like a, a rebirth, a day of rebirth. You know, we were like dedicating and going and it's really happening. And despite COVID and COVID, we won, we got through it and now we're going to move. <laughs> so it made the, it, it energized them even more. I think they were all really excited. I, I was very surprised at how excited the team was when they, the morning of, and I got there super early and there were people before me and I'm like, oh my goodness, did I miss something? It's, no, we brought donuts and we brought this and we brought that. And they had a whole little party area all set up. And I'm like, wow, now that's a team. <laughs> so and I think it really was one of the things that made your project and your organization so special because it really was a trickle down from the leadership all the way down to the frontline staff. Um, there was just this sense of commitment to the overall success of the day. Um, I remember before, right before COVID, how crazy to think about, um, we had that, that summit and we talked about change and we talked about how important you know, your role as a leader, Lori's role, Carrie's role, Allison's role, everybody's role was to make this a success. Um, it included things like a panel of experts. So we brought in experts from across the country that had done it before. And um, I don't, I, I think I have a picture of you specifically, Lori, building that spaghetti and marshmallow tower. Oh, yeah. And we kept changing the rules on you to talk about change. Um, why do you think leadership engagement is so so important um and not just you know day to day but specifically on a transition project so i kind of think of senior leaders and the 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 layer just below the senior leadership i think of them as in a family way i think of them as a structure in the family if your parental role is solid and you feel like the family is well handled. I think security comes from knowing that anybody that's above you, mom, dad, grandparents, aunties, uncles, brothers and sisters, whoever is overseeing the family dynamics, if they're if they're in control, I think people rest easy. They don't worry. It's it's like it's almost like uh, two pilots in a in a cockpit. When the captain says we're cruising along and we're going to be there and we're a little bit early and, you know, you just know somebody's in control. And I think that you really, you really have to make that abundantly clear to the staff that we got this, you know, this is going to be a success no matter how um, difficult it may feel or look or sound. It doesn't mean everything's going to go smooth. It doesn't mean that we have all the answers yet. But we will when we get to our destination and when it's time to actually move these patients, we will we will be ready to go. We won't have anything that will be unanswered. We will turn every stone. We will evaluate every um, scenario. And that's the thing that I love most in my life is that I'm, I'm a thinker about, okay, just like you said, I, I strategize and I say to myself, Okay, if that vent fails, where am I going to have my next vent? Who's going to get it? How am I going to communicate it? I just have to have all those things answered. So when I talk to my teams and I talk to my senior leaders and they ask me that question, I can say with confidence that I am ready 
and these, this is the evidence of my readiness. And, you know, I walk through and just share with them. And I, and I go as far as saying, I've already communicated this with my nursing partners and colleagues so that they know in case, in case the RT goes down, the nurse knows what to do. You know, I mean, it's just all of the, the issues that are so important for the safety of the patient, which is really what we're talking about here. We're talking about taking this very, very vulnerable individual who's laying in a bed intubated or post-operative, couldn't run to save their life, couldn't get out of the way if they needed to. They're relying 1000% on the team that surrounds that bed. So we have to get them. It's our obligation and our responsibility as we cradle and care for these individuals. We have to get them from point A to B, and that lies on our shoulders as leaders. So, you know, the more the leader um, shares that sense of control and comfort with the project, if I'm, you know, you know, you know, the old um, statement, if never let them see you sweat, that's so true. Never let your team see you sweat. If you're a leader, you keep smiling, even if you're going, oh my, how am I going to get out of this one? But um, it's it's so important that they know, and it's important to me that my senior leaders support me and I feel like they answer my questions and don't uh, hold anything back. I can trust them. And that's exactly how Loma Linda, I think, successfully pulled this big move off. So last question would be um, anybody, you know, I know a lot of projects are ramping up. They were postponed, you know, due to the circumstances over the last couple of years. Um, anybody new to transition or starting a project, what would be your number one advice to them? So I think the first thing is don't panic. <laughs> it looks like it's massive and big and like, oh my goodness, how am I going to get a, how am I going to get all of this done? Because, you know, the transition project was in addition to all other stuff that we do as leaders. So it's not like I can say, you know what, I'm going to pick up my leadership role and I'm just going to set it in a box on the shelf. Yeah. And I'll dust it off a little bit later when I don't have so much more, so much to do and so much more pressing um, uh, stuff to, to arrive at. So honestly, it's not worth worrying because guess what? You've got your consultants that typically most consultants are like financial consultants or, you know, process improvement consultants. Some of them are very social and very fun, but most of the time they're not. <laughs> they're there to give you the good news that, okay, you are doing, you're as lean as you can be, or, you know, you know, no, we got a lot of cutting you can do here. So in the case of Yellow Brick, it was a fun experience. It was like bringing on friends to help you pack your house up and get you over to your new home, literally. So I would tell anybody that although the binder scares you, the list that they give you and the, the tri-folded paper that you're looking at going, uh-oh, what is this? You know, It's nothing to worry about. There's plenty of resources. I mean, obviously Allison was amazing. Uh, Allison did an incredible job of helping us stay on track. But I think also Allison didn't do that all alone. She did it with a team of leaders and you know, uh, other staff members who are as dedicated as she is and was to the project. Um, and we all partnered together, but we had that, that understanding that Yellow Brick was there for us. You guys all gave us emails, you gave us um, contact information. We never felt like we were on an island by ourselves. We always were 
um, acutely aware that this was a, a big village of people dedicated to this move. So I would say, number one, don't worry about it. And number two, when you get down to really making that final plan to start your move, always remember to pick the right people on the bus. Because if you've got a person who's only mildly engaged in your general day-to-day -day activities, they may not come through for you on move day. <laughs> so it's the one that says, yeah, I got a little pickup truck, but you know, I might be cleaning out my garage on that day. So I may not be able to help you, you know? So pick the people that are gonna be there that you can count on, that you really know will see the project through and have engagement, you know, because it just it doesn't help to constantly have to push people to do something that they should be ramped up, amped up, and ready to go. And you know, that's the kind of people I pick to help me uh, get through the challenges and at the end be successful in the moves. So those are probably the two key things. Don't run, scream down the street, you know. <laughs> you know, it's just it's not worth it, trust me. You you don't it you'll be surprised how really when you look back and go, wow, we did it and it's been a year and everything's going well. So, you know, what was I all shook up about? So yeah. Well, um these questions that I'm about to ask you, Lori, um, I didn't send in advance. It's a fun section. It's, you know, Yellow Brick loves fun and fun facts. Um, so it's time for some rapid fire for you. I'm going to ask you some questions. You tell us what comes to mind first. That okay with you? Absolutely. <laughs> okay, here we go. All right. Your favorite city in the United States besides the one you live in? My favorite city in the United States, San Diego. San Diego. You know what? That is one of the most popular answers. Why do yep. you think that is? It's gorgeous. That's why it's so pretty. Yeah. <laughs> it cats, is. cats or dogs? Dog. Dogs. Do you have any dogs? I do. I have a darling little uh, Glen of a Mall Terrier. His oh. name is Dobby, and we adopted him two years ago from our best friends. And he is an absolute dream come true for a pet. Oh, I, I love him. <laughs> I love dogs. And Dobby, is that after Harry Potter? It is after Harry Potter. My girlfriend who gave us uh, Dobby, who, adopt, who we were able to adopt with, um, she named him. And at first I thought, oh, it's kind of a weird name. But then he is truly a house elf. He is like so cute. And he's got so much personality. So hands down, that name suited him completely. Adorable. Um, yeah. Okay, so this is Loma Linda specific. Um, chips or Fritos with your haystack? Fritos. Fritos. Uh, can you tell our listeners who are unfamiliar with haystacks what a haystack is? So a haystack, if you want to get right down to it, is a Seventh-day Adventist uh, version of a taco salad. <laughs> and it is a tradition. And when COVID hit, because a lot of the process of you know, serving yourself with utensils that were picked up by a number of different people and so forth, um, we discontinued it. And I'm telling you, we almost had a riot on our hands because people were so upset um, that they did not have their haystacks anymore. And I do think at one point, the cafeteria started doing pre-made haystacks where you would get you know, little packets of uh, the chips and the beans you could heat up and put some cheese and lettuce and tomato. Um, it's got other stuff, sour cream and guacamole, but you know, it's a, it's a 
something you will find at every uh, church potluck or family potluck, and you can spice it up or spice it down. You can do anything you want with it. And in the Seventh-day Adventist and Loma Linda environment, it's always usually vegetarian um, because that's our, the health message that Loma Linda promotes here. Well, we loved Haystack Wednesdays. So it was um, great. <laughs> Jean, if you're listening, you have to bring them back. Um, <laughs> they are back, by the way, in our new beautiful cafeteria, including wow. a smoothie bar, a waffle bar, a panini bar. We got all kinds of good stuff now, thanks to our move. <laughs> You have to come visit. Um, yes. Favorite season, even though we don't get seasons in California, really. Hands down, fall. Um, I love fall. Favorite, favorite of all. And you're absolutely right. In the Coachella Valley, we had hot and hotter. So that's pretty much uh, sun and sunnier. <laughs> yeah. um, do you have any book that you would recommend to our listeners? So... I have a favorite um, collection, the, the Crucial Conversations, the Crucial Confrontations. They're books on how to master that communication. Um, I love that book um, and th that book group. And actually I'm working on uh, my leadership growth and development with the My Marietta team. And we're on Crucial Converse, uh, Confrontations now. So um, they also have crucial accountability, which is so important in leadership. It's basic, but it gives you a lot of scenarios and it allows you to role play so that you can really get close to the idea of how to better communicate because communication is everything. It, it really does go to the level of your family, to a stranger on the street. I mean, it goes to everything. And I'm a little chatty Kathy. I can talk to anybody to myself. And, you know, that's a problem sometimes. But at the end of the day, it's probably what makes me successful because not only am I, a, it teaches you to be a good communicator, but also a good listener. So, you know, it's, it's a great book. And also a really fun read um, is the one it's called The Sticks. And it's a super easy read, but it talks about how, a group of people get a pile of sticks and they have to figure out how to wrap them and put them together. And at the end, they figure out the best way to do it. I won't give away the whole story, but it's even, there's even um, opportunities for like um, large groups to practice this talent of how everybody contributes to how to get these sticks together. And you're much better with all the sticks together than you are individually with just one stick. <laughs> It's a cute little book. It's an easy read. 30 minutes, you're at, you're done. Lunch break. You're giving um, us ideas for a summit activity. You know, I know. Good activity. Um, favorite Thanksgiving food? Uh, stuffing, unfortunately. I'm a stuffing person. Second would be mashed potato, but, you know, I could just like swim in stuffing, especially really good stuffing. I just love that flavor. Stuffing with mashed potatoes. <laughs> So <laughs> two for and, one. <laughs> and the last thing with our um, thankful season coming up, what are you most thankful for? Wow. I have a ton of things on that list, but I would probably say the fact that, you know, um, for the most part, the members of my family and my work family, with the exception of one, um, survived the COVID pandemic. I, it's just one of those things that, you know, it's such a obvious 
challenge for the world, you know, people just dying in the horrific ways that they passed. So I guess that would be, you know, anybody who survived that, um, that dark days and are now on the other side of it, even though there's still people that are very, very sick with COVID, we still have, you know, three patients on ventilators and we have regular uh, patients that, you know, come to the emergency room for treatment, but it doesn't feel as fast paced. And I'm just grateful that the majority of people that, that I knew and work with and stuff, they um, successfully got out of it. And, you know, some did get it. They were sick, very sick, but um, managed to uh, come out of it without going to the level of the ICU and stuff. So I am so grateful for that and grateful for, you know, a family who did not get upset with me when I told them I'm not going to see you until COVID dies down. <laughs> Cause I really, you know, I thought, uh, well, my brother, he was like, what do you mean? You're not going to see us for a whole year. And I'm like, well, you got to understand I'm in the hub of it. And there, that was before vaccines. And I just felt like, you know, the last thing I wanted to do was share it with anyone or any members of my family or friends. So, you know, I loved, I learned a lot about myself in those two years about how I can survive and um, the, the ability to uh, make uh, Reese's peanut butter cups a lunch, <laughs> how I could take candy and make it into a food group <laughs> from my desk. <laughs> I, that is a, a very beautiful sentiment and I 100% agree. We all should be thankful for yes. that. And um, I think if Allison was listening, I think that would qualify as lunch. So, oh, I know she would eat Andy's mints. I would. I never saw anybody just sit there and pop these um, Andy's mints into their mouth and um, and make. I mean, she just like whoop and boop and boop. I mean, mints are good and I love them, but I can. I mean, Reese's peanut butter cups. I can just go and go and go, but not an Andy's mint. Oh, yeah. I think candy qualifies for some. Yeah. Well, um, Lori, it has been such a pleasure. Great conversation. Um, for those interested in connecting with you, somebody that maybe wants to learn more, do you have a LinkedIn that they can reach out to? I do. Uh, Lori Scott, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, you can find me there. And um, I'm also more than happy for them to email me at any time. And my work address would be LK Scott. At, and that's two T's at LLU dot E as in Edward, D as in David, U, E-D-U. So that's LKScott at LLU dot E-D-U. Happy to uh, provide any support and encouragement that I can for those that are embarking on a big transition. Well, um, we 100% know that Lori means that because we contact her all the time. Um, <laughs> and um, that is going to do it for this episode of Transition Tea. On our next episode, as always, we'll be joined by another healthcare leader to chat over our best practices and pour over any insights and share any transition and activation planning experience. We thank you all for listening. If you want to hear more conversations like this, please subscribe to Transition Tea on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you enjoy your podcast. If you actually want to see this conversation, we have a YouTube. So please follow us at our Yellow Brick YouTube channel. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.